Welcome to the Team Health Podcast Program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I am Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing the work-life imbalance that many of us have to address in our daily lives. It's difficult to control or manage our professional and personal lives, and it's substantially more difficult if you are the primary caretaker of your family, responsible for keeping everyone, including your children or perhaps even dependent parents, occupied and engaged. Well, today we have a very special guest, Jessica Bajwa. In her life, she has had to wrestle with these issues and has successfully done so by asking the right questions and thinking of innovative solutions from which we can all learn. I heard Jessica speak recently at a Women in Leadership conference on the topic of motherhood and medicine and recognized that she'd be an ideal guest for this program. Dr. Bajwa is a medical director for the hospitalist program at Memorial Regional Hospital South in Hollywood, Florida. She's won both Humanism and National Volunteer Awards. She's been part of several organizations promoting and addressing women's issues. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us your story. How did you develop an interest in addressing this topic? What happened? Like you said, I've always been interested in women's issues, but I didn't really understand until I became a mom how I was going to balance it all and how hard it really was going to be. So, you know, my first job out of training was at uh, Memorial Regional Hospital. I was working as a hospitalist um, in a program that was seven on, seven off, which meant that I was working for seven consecutive days for about 12-hour shifts a day, and then I was off for seven days. Two years into working, uh, me and my husband found out that we were pregnant and I was really excited. I really continued to work without any difficulty until I entered my uh, third trimester where most women really then start to feel a little bit more worn out. I went for a routine prenatal appointment and my OB started to see some signs of preterm labor. Uh, she asked me then about my work schedule, and she was a little concerned that I was working uh, seven days straight for 12-hour shifts, and she asked me if my schedule could be modified at all. At that point, I was a little overwhelmed. I obviously didn't want to risk the health of my baby, but I really also didn't know if my schedule could be modified. So I went and spoke with my facility medical director at that time and asked him if we could come up with a solution where I could still work full-time but maybe not on that strict schedule. I didn't think it would be something that he could accommodate. So I was pretty disappointed at that time, and I started to talk to other women that I was working with to see if they had had this similar struggles, and I realized that kind of all of us had a difficult time working the seven consecutive shifts later on in pregnancy. And that's when I realized that this was an issue and it was something that we had to address. And I started, you know, researching the topic and started to ask some difficult questions uh, to my leadership team at that time. Let me ask you, uh, was your director at that time inflexible or was he just surprised by the question and hadn't considered it before? When I spoke with my facility medical director at that time, he told me that nobody had really asked him that question before, and he felt as though it was something he couldn't accommodate. 
Um, so, you know, at that time, I made the difficult decision to stop working full-time. It meant that I no longer had my full-time benefits, and it also meant that my FMLA time was going to start right away, which meant less time with my baby down the road. Of course, there was also a financial strain because I was no longer working full-time, and so what I decided to do was pick up whatever shifts were available at the hospital, and I also picked up as-needed shifts at a clinic down the road. Um, So I really felt a little discouraged because it was sort of up to me to have to piecemeal two different jobs for financial security. I also felt that it was unfair that my husband, who's also a physician and was also having a child, didn't really have to make any scheduling modifications. And, you know, perhaps the biggest blow was that my FMLA time was starting right away, which I knew meant less time with my baby down the road. That's what really got me thinking, because when I started to talk to women that I was working with, I realized that we all had a concern about this. And so it started to make me think, you know, why weren't we bringing these questions to leadership and why weren't we talking about it, especially because, you know, in the program that I was working in, so many of us were were young women. And that's really actually very common in, in the hospitalist setting. Um, we find that most hospitalist programs are made up of women in their, you know, 30s and 40s. And it's not uncommon that women are, you know, getting pregnant at that age and they're working full-time as hospitalists. So this, a lot of the same concerns arise. And I was pretty shocked to find out that not that many people were bringing these questions up to to leadership. So I really started to get interested in this topic. And I just from, you know, doing some basic research, I started to realize that, you know, the physician demographic is changing. 2017 was the first year where we saw more female medical school graduates. And we know that, you know, 80% of female medical students are or will become mothers. We also know that the millennial generation now outnumbers the baby boomer generation. And, you know, several studies show that millennials value work-life balance a lot more than financial compensation. And so for all those reasons, I truly felt that the pressure was really on now for healthcare institutions to ensure the retention of their female physicians. I brought that up with my leadership and we tried to strategize ways we could really retain our female physicians. And one of the first things was working on the schedule. So we found that, you know, later on in pregnancy, women were having a hard time with that schedule. We found that they often preferred to work the weekends later on in pregnancy because it meant that, you know, the patient load was a little less. So one of the solutions that we came up with was that, you know, later on in pregnancy, we were offering women to work the weekends, plus or minus a Friday or a Monday. The good thing was that it was really easy to find another doctor to pick up the remainder of the shifts because it meant that they had the weekend off for several weeks. So it ended up being a win-win situation, and the facility medical director didn't have to worry about finding any staff relief coverage. Well, that sounds like the beginning of a great solution. And as you've mentioned, there are an increasing number of female physicians. So on a just practical basis, we have to address this or run the risk, I suppose, of losing great clinicians. Uh, In my practice, Jessica, uh, women provide so much balance. Uh, They're better. what, What have you found in terms of 
women in practice? What is the, what is the, you've studied this, what does the information tell us? Not only are there more female physicians entering the workforce, but we also know that female physicians do provide high quality care. So there was a, you know, a pretty popular study uh, published in JAMA in 2016 where they sampled um, 20% of Medicare patients that were taken care of by internists, so uh, physicians in a hospital setting, and they found that if these elderly patients were cared for by a female physician, they actually had a 4% lower relative risk of dying prematurely, and they had a 5% lower relative risk of being readmitted to the hospital. We also find that female physicians are more likely to adhere to clinical guidelines. They're more likely to provide patient-centered communication, uh, psychosocial counseling, preventative care, and they perform as well or better on standardized exams compared to their male counterparts. You know, in addition to there being more of us, we also provide high-quality care, and that's care that I really think is worth fighting for. Well, you just made me glad that my primary care practitioner is a woman, um, plus she's wonderful. So I continue to hear that women in medicine are at higher risk for burnout and even suicide. Is that consistent with your understanding? Are are women at greater risk? And, And if so, why? We find that women do experience more burnout than their male counterparts, which has been known for some time. What I found really interesting in all the research that I did is when we looked at studies where they actually broke down physician burnout by age cohorts, we found that the biggest gender discrepancy in physician burnout was um, physicians under the age of 45. You know, we don't really have to think out of the box too much to realize that that really corresponds to the childbearing age. So we're finding that female physicians under the age of 45 experience significantly uh, more burnout than their counterparts. The statistic is about 31% of um, male physicians under the age of 45 report burnout, and that number jumps to 54% for female physicians. And then, um, you know, in terms of the suicide rate, we also find a really big discrepancy. I mean, we all know that physician suicide rate is a lot higher than the general population. But if we look at male physicians, they're 1.4 times more likely to commit suicide compared to the general population, whereas female physicians are 2.27 times more likely to commit suicide than the general population. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So that's... and. Again, you think it's the the same issue that so much that they have to balance in their lives um, beyond just their professional roles? So I can speak, you know, for myself. So I'm a hospitalist. My husband is an ER physician. And, you know, there was a study published in JAMA in 2017 that, that you know, really pertains to my family. They looked at dual physician households. And they found that after the arrival of kids, uh, you know, women, in this study, the women physicians work significantly less hours regardless of the age of their children, whereas the male physicians continue to, to work the same number of hours. So, you know, for me, the most interesting thing was that now this study found that 30% of female physicians are likely to be married to another doctor, whereas only 10% of male physicians are married to another doctor. 
So, you know, this suggests that female physicians are more likely to be married to a partner that's also committed to staying in the workforce. And then with the arrival of children, you know, something something has to give. And we're finding that it's often the female physician. Whereas, you know, that 10% of male physicians who are married to another doctor, they have similar struggles, but most of them are married to somebody who's not as committed to staying in the workforce. And then that person adopts sort of the family role, uh, allowing the husband to continue working full time. So Jessica, earlier you mentioned FMLA. Uh, I know that there are parental leave policies. Can you discuss the importance of those policies, how broadly adopted they are, and what are some of the variations? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I truly believe one of the best ways to address maternal physician burnout is through having adequate parental leave policy. And we definitely have room for improvement there um, as a nation, uh, as an industry. So, you know, as a nation, unfortunately, the U.S. is the only developed nation in the world that doesn't offer paid maternity leave. Uh, so what do we offer? Um, in 1993, the FMLA Act was passed by the Clinton administration, and it basically guarantees 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Um, in order to qualify for this, for this leave, um, employees have to work for a company with at least 50 employees. They have to be working for a year, and they have to be working for 1,250 hours to qualify. For me, the most shocking thing was I found that based on all those stipulations, more than 40% of U.S. workers don't even meet FMLA requirements. And then perhaps more shocking, of those that do, 64% of them opt not to take it simply because they can't afford unpaid leave. Um, So really what FMLA provides is 12 weeks of unpaid leave, which essentially corresponds to 12 weeks of job security. Uh, There are several states in the U.S. that have passed some paid maternity leave laws, and those states are California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. But definitely compared to the rest of the world, we are are lacking on this. So paid leave sounds like a good solution to this problem, to allow uh, a family to form the appropriate foundation. I would think that medical organizations would be particularly sensitive to parental leave policies, or, or am I just naive? <laughs> well, so I ask the same question because I think as physicians, a lot of our mindset is really formed at the level of our general medical education. So I did start to look at our GME policies. Uh, you know, I'm happy to say that the American Academy of Pediatrics does endorse 12 weeks of paid maternity leave, and they cite it as the fact that it benefits the child. Um, But there was a study done pretty recently in JAMA in 2018, and they looked at the top 12 U.S. medical schools, and they found the mean duration of paid maternity leave was only 8.6 weeks. So, you know, clearly less than what the American Academy of Pediatrics endorses. And then for me, you know, the other thing that was really shocking, well, you know, I, I was talking to friends that were, that were doing their fellowship, and all of them kept telling me, oh, I, I have to go back after six weeks of having my baby. And so I started to look into this, and, you know, this, this same study in, in JAMA in 2018 reviewed uh, specialty boards. 
And they found of the 24 specialty board leave policies, only 11 of them actually had leave policies and none of them had separate leave policies containing or pertaining, sorry, to parental leave. And of 20 of those 24 specialty boards, only six weeks of leave were permitted in any one year, which means that, you know, it, it makes sense. What my friends doing fellowship told me that after they had their baby, they were required to go back within six weeks. And in fact, um, if they took longer than that, so if they took the 12 weeks like FMLA allows you to, some of them were considered board ineligible to sit for their specialty boards that year. So then I looked at the ACGME, and the ACGME essentially says that they encourage that various board accreditation councils eliminate eliminate penalties uh, regarding this policy, but there's no hard, fast rules against it. Well, that's so disappointing. Um, I would have expected in this time when we're all so much more aware of physician mental, emotional, and physical health that uh, more of the organizations would be behind this. I'm sorry to hear it. Uh, are you finding that it's at least moving in the correct direction? So I think a lot of companies are starting to offer uh, more paid maternity leave policies through you know, their short-term disability policies. Um, I think that as an industry, we're definitely behind. Uh, when I was researching this, I found that the technology, the financial sector, and many law firms are really leading on this. And I'm hoping that the medical field will look to these other industries um, to improve our benefits. So can you describe some of the other solutions. One of the things that I specifically heard you describe is actually changing your mindset at work, but can you tell us what that means? Once I realized that so many of us were experiencing this, I, I made an active decision to stop apologizing for my reality. Um, you know, as working moms, we often expect women to work as if they don't have children and then raise children as if they're not working. And it's hard and it's, it's not easy. And sometimes as women, we feel like we just have to handle it all and not say anything about it. Um, so I made an active decision to not apologize for my reality, to talk about the struggles that I was having. And for me, that was challenging and it was a really big mindset change. I now like to say that I identify myself as a mama doc all the time. Um, so what does that mean? I mean, I think it means something different for everybody. For me, it meant that, you know, once I entered leadership, there was times where I couldn't make last-minute meeting changes at work, and I didn't apologize for it. And similarly, with my mommy friends, there was times where I couldn't make last-minute playdates. Um, I realized, though, once I started to portray myself more authentically at work, not only did my mindset change, but so did that of my leader's. And once I started to really talk about the struggles I was having, it forced other people around me to talk about similar struggles. And then, you know, together we were able to find, to find solutions. And, you know, it started with the schedule, but then we started to find solutions about, you know, pumping at work and, you know, making sure we have, had adequate facilities. Uh, we talked about maternity parking, um, 
and, you know, many more, many more challenges that many of us had. Well, Jessica, I think that many of us as men don't really realize the kinds of pressures and difficulties uh, that that women have who are uh, addressing motherhood. And it's because of your articulate, thoughtful, clear, and compelling description that it helps us all move forward. Do you have any final words that you'd like to say? I hope that the message is loud and clear that, you know, in healthcare, our workforce is changing. There's going to be more female physicians, um, especially young female physicians. And I truly think other nations and other industries already have a head start. Um, You know, I think that the principles of supply and demand are going to force us to change our mindset and it's going to force us to reevaluate policy and, and flexibility Um, But what I'm hoping is that we don't lose too many qualified physicians as we consider these changes. And I think just being here and talking to you today about it is is a great start to start the conversation. I agree. And I just want to thank you so much. And I, I know you're aware of her, but I think your words and actions are a tribute to the sage words of uh, Rupi Kaur, who said, I stand on the sacrifices of a million women before me, thinking what I can do to make this mountain taller so the women after me can see further. Thank you so much, Jessica. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast with Dr. Jessica Bajwa. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. That's beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.